now. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3? Uh, we're going to spend some time studying God's Word today. Uh, last week, we, we covered just one verse of this uh, section, verse 1 of chapter 3. <clears throat> this whole section has to do with qualifications of church leaders, and verse 1 was really just an introduction to this section of Scripture. Um, it covers a couple, couple of practical truths which are important to understand before we begin to look at the qualifications, so I'll just briefly recap uh, those, but first we saw that the church leaders are to be men. That's God's design, His plan for His church. It's His house, and He He makes the rules for His house. Uh, second, we saw that the church leaders are referred to as as bishop, um, episkopos, which is used interchangeably with the most common term in the New Testament for a church leader, which is elder, presbyteros. So, church elders who answer the calling to church leadership are committed to a good work, Timothy says there in verse 1, a noble work because it's a noble calling to, to, to commit to stewarding the house of God. And that was really the first reason that these qualifications come to us that we looked at last week, that uh, leaders have been given stewardship of God's house. The church is God's most sacred possession, Christ Jesus died for it. And he has entrusted the oversight, the care, and the management of the church, of his house, to church elders, to men who are, who are fallible, who are fallen, but must meet these qualifications set in Scripture by God himself, not by any other standard that a church may, may set, no other qualifications but the ones that are listed here. Second, the reason for these qualifications is that elders are to be examples for the church. If you remember, we looked at 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 to 3. We'll put it up for you again. But it says, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock." Elders are, are the shepherds of the flock, the shepherds of the people, and, and they can have a tremendous impact upon the behavior, upon the thinking, upon the attitudes, upon the conduct of the people. Therefore, God's desires that the leaders of the church set the example of godliness in the church. Third, the biblical, biblical qualifications that we're about to study are for the protection of the church, which we, we looked at briefly last week as well. You don't want um, unbiblically qualified men to be in leadership of the church. You have men who come in with major moral defects and character flaws, men who have uh, just no natural giftedness or abilities that are listed in, in Scripture, and, and maybe selfish motives. If you have men in leadership like that, you're going to have a church in um, a great deal of trouble. Many churches, I think, because they're so desperate for leadership, just uh, take, take men on board based on their own set of qualifications. And many of them are good things. They're not bad things, but they're not God's qualifications. It's good that you can have a seminary graduate, but if you don't have any of the other things that match up in Scripture that God lists here, you're not biblically qualified to lead a, 
a church. People with charismatic personalities, that doesn't qualify them to lead a church. People who are senior members of the church, they've just been there a long time, been faithful in church attendance. None of those things are, are classified as biblical qualifications. They can be good uh, things because someone's been around a long time, so there's been a long time for people to observe their character and conduct. That's great. But they must meet these biblical qualifications. And so we're going to look at these. And as we look at these, we're, we're going to see that it covers uh, six specific areas of the life of uh, an elder or a person in ministry. And you don't have to write these all down right now because we'll go through them one by one. But we're going to look at his moral reputation. We'll look at his marriage. We'll look at his mastery of self. We'll look at his ministry, his managed, managed home, and also his maturity. But we're going to cover half of these today, so don't worry. We're not going to get through all those today. So these, uh, last week we looked at the noble calling. This week we're looking at the noble qualifications, uh, part one. We're only going to do half of them, the noble qualifications. So follow along as I read. We're going to look at the whole section just to get the whole context again. It's verses 1 through 7 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word to us today. We pray that you would just prepare our hearts for what you want to teach us, Lord, that you would bless us with your spirit to give us um, insight, illumination into the truth of your word. Lord, that we might live lives that glorify you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we go through these, uh, we're going to go through one by one. I want you to keep two things in mind, okay? One is that this is not an exhaustive list. This is, this is the bare minimum requirement for a leader in the church. But two, this is meant to be the bare minimum that we should all desire to reach. And I mentioned it last week. You're going to want to listen to this list with eyes to others, particularly maybe the leaders. And that's okay. You're, we're supposed to have done that anyway before leaders even enter the position of an elder. But, but I want you to look at these with eyes for yourself because elders are to be the example for others to follow. So let's look at these one by one. We're going to begin with his moral reputation. His moral reputation is the first qualification, beginning in verse 2, because we covered last uh, week, verse 1. He says, a bishop then must be blameless. Blameless. That's the first qualification. His moral reputation has to do with this blamelessness. It is the overarching, all-embracing, all-encompassing uh, qualification. And all other qualifications that we're going to look at fall under that category of blameless. Everything that we look at today, he must be blameless. Now, let's look at this word, blameless. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce it, anapil aptos. It's not able to be held or above reproach. 
The word is only unique to this letter. So it's a very unique word. It's used in two other places here in 1 Timothy. It's used in chapter 5, verse 7. I'll just read it to you. And these things command that they may be blameless. And it's used in chapter 6, verse 14. That you keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing. And then it's used nowhere else in Scripture, a very unique word. And what it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean sinless perfection. For someone to be blameless does not mean that they're sinless or perfect because, well, no one would qualify but Jesus alone. Rather, it means this. If this person were to be arrested and held and tried as a criminal, there's nothing which he can be accused of. That's the idea of not able to be held. They'd have to set him free. Above reproach. I've often referred to this type of person as the Teflon man. I was scrambling eggs today on, actually I wasn't scrambling, I was frying them, on a brand new pan that my wife um, purchased for a family because I just got tired of my eggs sticking in our old pan. I could not cook an egg without it just breaking all over the place because it loses it, doesn't it? It loses that, that gliding ability and so I just had the most two perfectly cooked fried eggs today. And as I was doing, I was thinking, you know, that's because of the, um, the, it has this non-stick coating. That's the idea, that if there were to be any accusation that would come against this man, and accusations will come, but that they wouldn't stick. Yeah. That once examined, once uh, investigated, those things would not prove to be untrue accusations. Many a ministry leader can be accused of things, but do they stick? So this is a man who is free from any moral defects, any major character flaws, and we're going to look at those in a moment. But when I think of scriptural examples, I always look at Daniel. Daniel was one such man. And you might remember in Daniel chapter 6, by this point in Daniel's life, and remember he has been taken to Babylon, and so he's serving in a, in a pagan culture. He has risen to prominence. He is one of three governors over all the satraps and all of the, the people of the kingdom, one of three. And it tells us that the king is even considering putting him above all those three, that he would be the chief of the kingdom. And so the other satraps, the other governors are starting to look at Daniel like, well, we don't want to have to go and report to this guy. He's not really even one of us. He's a foreigner. And so we're told that they then began to examine his life because they wanted to find something of which they could accuse him, disqualify him for that role of governor. And in Daniel chapter 6, verse 4, this is what it says. So the governors and the satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. When they examined his life, they couldn't find anything to accuse him of. They were, they, were, they were out of ammo here. All Christians are called to live holy and blameless lives. That's not just something for leaders in the church. Leaders are to be the primary example of what a blameless life looks like, but all believers are to live that kind of life so that there could be nothing of which others could accuse you of. Philippians 3.17, Paul shared this, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk 
as you have us for a pattern. You're, you're supposed to, you know, we're set in the way, we're showing, but you're supposed to follow us, Paul uh, says. That is the role of an elder, to begin to live that kind of life for others to follow. You know, Job, you think of Job, Job was an elder. We find out later at the end of Job that that is the case. But at the beginning of Job, in Job chapter 1, verse 1, this is how he is described. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. Now, this gave him credibility with the people. When you get to the end of Job's life, you find out that they listened to his counsel, that they would come to him for that counsel. They recognized him as a, a leader, and that is the idea. A church must have blameless leadership above reproach. They must be committed to maintaining this standard of leadership. And so an elder must be above reproach or blameless in all these following areas as we're about to go. And the first character virtue described in both this letter and in Titus, by the way, Titus mirrors this very closely, the very first one deals with his marriage. So we look first here at his, his life here in terms of his moral reputation, but now we're looking at his marriage. Look at verse 2 again. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. Literally in the Greek, the term is one woman man. That's how the phrase appears, one woman man. And that's how I put it up there for you as well. And what this refers to is his marital and sexual life. Not, and I want you to note this, not his marital status. The issue is moral sexual behavior. That's the idea. And I think so many people miss Paul's point here because they misinterpret Paul's meaning to be a quantitative one rather than qualitative one. He's got to have a wife. He's got to have only one wife. He's got to, you know, and they kind of go down this, this role. And so you will hear things like this. Well, Paul's whole point here is he's forbidding polygamy, the, the, the idea that you could have more than one wife. Well, um, that's certainly included in this, but polygamy would disqualify from someone from being a member of the church, <laughs> much less an elder or leader of the church. In addition, um, historically, there's no evidence that polygamy was a major issue in Ephesus or in the Roman culture, and it certainly wasn't something common in first century Jews. Also, I want to point this out. There's a very similar phrase used in chapter 5, verse 9. Just look ahead of it. It says, Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man. Now, in this section, and we'll get to that in a few weeks' time, these are qualifications for a widow. You might say, well, qualifications for a widow, what, qualif what qualifies you to be a widow other than you lost your husband? But these are for widows who are receiving assistance, living assistance from a church. There's actually qualifications that Paul's going to go through that. I find you find that interesting. But notice that she must have been the wife of one man. Interesting. The elder in the church must be a one-woman man, and a widow must be a one-man woman. So do we really think that Paul here in addressing widows is excluding the care of widows because maybe they happen to be married more than once? Oh, they had, oh, this is their second husband. Okay, no care for this lady. Probably not likely, and we shouldn't do the same here. Some think it has to do with 
how many times someone has been married. And so they will exclude men from the running if they've been remarried after the death of a spouse or if they've remarried after divorce when uh, an unbelieving partner either leaves them or if they have a, a, a biblical reason to leave, which is adultery, according to Scripture. And so they would say, well, Paul's meaning here is married only once in your lifetime. And if you ever had another spouse, no matter what the situation is, then you are disqualified. That's hard. A man who was divorced and remarried or a widower who had remarried could not be an elder, according to that view. But also, you wouldn't be able to be a deacon because further down in verse 12, it says the same thing about deacons. And we'll look in a few weeks what deacons are. But verse 12, it says, let deacons be the husbands of one wife. Well, that would seem harsh as well. Let me handle these bad interpretations with just a couple of points, okay? When we look at the issue of marriage and remarriage, and listen, I hear people make a mess of this stuff all the time. We have to look at what the Bible does say, not what it doesn't say, okay? First, nowhere in the Bible is there an ordinance against second marriages. You don't see that. In fact, Paul gives permission to widows to remarry another believer in 1 Corinthians 7.39. And here in chapter 5, as I began to point out, he actually encourages younger widows actually to remarry. Second, Jesus permitted remarriage when a divorce was caused by adultery. And Paul gives permission for remarriage in the case of a, a non-believing partner who uh, leaves the marriage. But both of those are what the Bible teaches on marriage and remarriage. But to argue from the standpoint that Paul is disqualifying someone from leadership because of remarriage is to really argue from nowhere else in Scripture. And that's a difficult position to put yourself in. But here's the bigger reason, I would say. That creates way more problems than it solves. Huge. And God is not the author of confusion. We're not to get into a big battle, but you think about the hornet's nest that begins to make. Okay, were they married only once in their lifetime? Was it while they were a believer? Was it while they were a non-believer? Were they divorced? Were they not divorced? Did it take place before or after conversion? I mean, there's no end to that bottomless pit. That's not Paul's point. Finally, some people will take it to mean that an elder must be married, that you can't be single and lead a, a church. And if that were the case, Paul would be disqualifying even himself. In fact, he says that's even better to be single because you're, you're more free to serve the Lord. See, all those are wrong because the issue is not quantitative, but qualitative. The fact is, most men are married, and on that point, then also have children because he's going to get to the the, the children part. And people do the same there. Oh, it says children, not child. So they can't just have one child. They got to have two. That's not Paul's point. But we get in trouble with all this stuff. His point is this. It's about the quality of marriage if they are married. Is he truly a one woman man? Let me tell you, there's a lot of men married to one woman, but they are not a one woman man. Do you know what I mean? They have wandering eyes and wandering hearts. Their hearts are not truly fixed upon their spouse. They're not truly satisfied with their spouse. They're not truly committed and faithful to them and them alone. Do you know what wasn't a problem in Ephesus? Polygamy. Do you know what was a problem in Ephesus? Sexual immorality. You didn't have to go and get remarried to have that. That was everywhere, and it was absolutely available to all. And guess what? That's today. 
You don't have to remarry. You don't have to divorce and remarry to have a sexual fantasy. You can pipe it right into your home. This is Paul's meaning. This is what he's trying to drive at. Jesus said, if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. It's what comes out of a man. It originates in the heart. And so men here who are married must be faithfully committed to their marriages inside and out. And Paul begins in this list of blamelessness, of above reproach here in the marriage of all places. Why? I think it should be obvious to all of us, right? The failure to be a one-woman man has been the downfall of many a leader throughout history. More men have been disqualified from the ministry because of that sin more than any other sin. Satan has been using the same tactics for hundreds and hundreds of years. I want to show this to you really briefly. If you'll turn to Numbers chapter 25 really quick. There's many examples I could take you to, but let me just take you to this one and we'll look at one more for the sake of time. But in Numbers 25, this is the point of Israel's history where they have failed to go into the promised land, the land of Canaan, because of the bad report the spies gave. So now they're, they're, they're allocated to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation dies out. So this is during their wanderings. And while they're wandering, they're getting into a whole lot of trouble. And in Numbers 25, this is what it tells us. Verse 1, now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Because Israel began to fornicate with foreign women, which is why the Bible um, basically said, don't do that. The women led those men's hearts to worship their, their gods. And so God's anger began to be aroused. And what we find out is that he begins to, to put a plague amongst the people. People are, are, are dying. Now skip ahead to verse 6, because now you see their response. And indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel, who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And now with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it. He rose from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent, and he thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through her body. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. So Phinehas just went up and, and killed this couple because he wanted to stop the plague. He was trying to save lives. Now, you might be going, okay, well, they committed adultery and, and whatever was going on, but, but what does this have to do with leadership? I want you to see who this Israelite was. Skip down to verse 14. Now, the name of the Israelite who was killed, who was killed with the Midianite woman, was Zimri, the son of Salu, a leader of a father's house among the Simeonites. He was a leader of a tribe, the Simeonites. Simeon, the tribe of Simeon. He, he was leading the people straight as a leader, even back in Numbers 25. And God's anger was aroused. He started to destroy the people because of the sin of leadership. All you have to do is go ahead from that and think of King David in 1 Samuel, don't you? I mean, you think of 2 Samuel. He's, he's um, not going out to war when he, he should. He sees a pretty woman. He asks her over. He commits adultery, and that leads to murder and all of these things. 
Now, listen, David didn't lose kingship, but he lost his son, and the sword never departed from his house. And he wasn't allowed to build the house for God because he was a man of war and blood. And so that was going to be passed on to his son, Solomon, who had his own problems. In fact, I want you to see Solomon really briefly. It's in 1 Kings 11. So just make a right turn from where you are and go to 1 Kings chapter 11. We'll take a brief look at Solomon, and then we'll get back to our passage. 1 Kings 11. Now Solomon was allowed to build the temple for the Lord, but look what happened to his heart. Verse 1. But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. And we're told that's exactly what he did. His heart was turned away. And because of that, God tore the kingdom from him. In fact, the, the kingdom was torn in half, never to become whole again. Those are just some biblical examples. But today, we probably could have no end of examples we could, we could talk about. Probably Ravi Zacharias being the most recent I could even think about. A man that we all revered, read his books, watched his videos, and yet a man who succumbed to sexual immorality. It has a devastating effect upon the church, and Satan knows it. And so he's been using the same tactics for years. And so a one-woman man must be faithfully committed to his wife in his heart, in mind, and deed. He should love and desire only her. And if he fails in this area, I want you to note this. We're told that his reproach will never be taken away. Proverbs 6.25 and also 32-33 to 33 I put together. It says, Do not lust in your heart after her beauty or let her captivate you with her eyes, her being the adulteress. But uh, a man who commits adultery has no sense. Whoever does so destroys himself. Blows and disgrace are his lot, and his shame will never be wiped away. His shame is never wiped away. So a man who fails in this area, in my opinion, is biblically disqualified for leadership because they've lost trust They've lost credibility. They can be forgiven. They can be restored to fellowship in a church. They can never be restored to leadership in a church. And I think too many churches quickly restore fallen leaders who have, who've, who have fallen in this area. They're not one uh, woman man, and they have um, been too quickly, quickly restored. And I don't think that's biblically accurate. He may be forgiven. He just cannot be a leader. So Paul puts this, this qualification first in terms of blameless, above reproach, in his heart, in his mind, in his deed. He must be committed in his marriage. He must be a one-woman man. The next area we're going to look, area three, is his mastery of self. And there are a couple of groupings within this that we're going to look at. The first um, is what he must be. The second is what he must not be. But let's look at what he must be. His mastery of self, what he, what he must be. And we'll kind of go through these a little quicker now. A bishop then must be blameless. This is verse two, the husband of one wife, temperate, temperate, nephaeos, nephaeos. And that is literally means to abstain from wine. It means to be, to be sober. Now, because in just a few minutes, you're going to see another qualification is he's not given to wine. Um, I think this qualification is meant to be taken metaphorically. 
It speaks of mental sobriety because it's also used in chapter 3, verse 11 of deacons' wives. It's also used in Titus 2, 2 of older men. It, to be temperate then is to be self-controlled or self-restrained. So there's the self-mastery aspect. But free in his life from anything that would distort his judgment or negatively affect his conduct. Not just wine, but anything that would distort that. In other words, he's, he's well-balanced. There are no um, debilitating excesses in his life that harm his judgment. Um, no rash behavior. We might use the phrase in our term today, uh, level-headed. Okay? Temperate is the level-headed uh, man. And it's very similarly, the next word goes along with it. They also must be sober-minded. So there it is in verse, uh, verse 2. He's temperate and also sober-minded. Some translations, maybe it says this in your Bible, prudent, sensible. Those appear in different translations. The word is sophron. It's self-control, um, particularly as it relates to exercising good judgment or exercising discretion and common sense. I think it's a quality that is a result of being temperate. The temperate man who doesn't allow anything in his life to distort his judgment, to negatively affect his conduct, will then like-minded be sober-minded. He is in self-control of, of, of things that pertaining to good judgment. He exercises common sense. So a man with these two qualities will naturally be orderly, which is the meaning of the next phrase. Notice it. It says, of good behavior. He's temperate, sober-minded, and of good behavior. Now, we saw this word already. It was back in chapter 2, verse 9. Let me remind you what it says there. It was speaking to women. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. Now, you might look at that verse and say, well, where is that phrase of good behavior? I don't see that in verse 9 because we're looking at the Greek word in verse 9. The Greek word is kosmios, which means well-arranged or orderly. In verse 9, it was that word modest. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, orderly, well-arranged apparel. That was the idea conveyed in, in chapter 2 because the orderly, well-arranged um, outer woman reflects an orderly, well-arranged inner woman. That was the picture there. A properly prepared outside reflects a properly prepared heart. And here it has a similar meaning for the potential elder. His well-ordered life is a result of a well-ordered mind. Because the first two really sort of had to do with that. Quite a few translations render this word respectable. Maybe it says that in your Bible. So this is the man who was the well-ordered, non-chaotic life, which causes one to be respected by others. There can't be any expectation for others to follow him if he's not respectable. He must be respectable. So these are the mastery of self that has to do what, with what he must be. Now, there are some more, that, but they're found in verse 3. So what we're going to do here is we're going to leapfrog over the next two words in your Bible there. Notice what they say in verse 2, hospitable and able to teach. So we're just going to leapfrog those for a moment, and we will come back to those, because the others in verse 3 fit under the self-mastery. 
the hospitable and able to teach fit under his ministry. So we'll look at those next time. But this still continuing on with self-mastery in verse 3, we come to what he must not be. We looked at what he must be and now what he must not be. These are all in the negative. They all say not this and not that and not this. And the first that we come to is not given to wine. So there's the wine one. In fact, the word given to wine is one word in the Greek, uh, paroinos, and it's used the exact same way in Titus 1.7. It says not given to wine, and it means exactly what it says. He's not given to wine. He's not drunken. This person is not addicted to alcohol. In fact, this person should not be addicted to anything. The Bible, let me just talk about this for a second, nowhere forbids the consumption of alcohol. I, I know you definitely have people who are in different camps. Oh, no, you shouldn't drink it. Oh, it's okay to drink it. What does the Bible say? Well, it doesn't anywhere uh, forbid it, but I do want to point out what it does say about it. First, it contains many warnings against the potential dangers of alcohol because the Bible knows of the dangers. Let me just show you a couple. In Isaiah 5:11 and verse 22, it says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may follow intoxicating drink, who continue until night, till wine inflames them. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink. I think this speaks to probably many in their younger days. Uh, the young men brag about how good of a drinker they are, <laughs> how they can drink someone under the table. This is not a person qualified for leadership. They're mighty at drinking wine. That's great but they're not qualified to lead. They are intoxicated by drink. The warning comes to us also in Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And wisdom is needed to lead a church, is it not? But if you're led astray by strong drink, by wine, because you're addicted to it, you're not qualified to lead. Now, those are just some general warnings, but I want to show you a few warnings that actually specifically come to, to leaders. Leaders in particular are warned of the dangers of alcohol. In Proverbs 31, 4 to 5, it says this, It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. Again, coming to the point of intoxication, because their judgment, their, their, their ability to pass on proper justice to others is hampered be, by, by alcohol. There are great dangers, obviously, that can accompany the drinking of alcohol. So while it's not forbidden, the warnings, they must be taken into consideration. Second, what does the Bible for, forbid? It forbids drunkenness. Not drinking alcohol, but drunkenness. Drunkenness is a sin, and people who are cons consistently drunk they do require church discipline. Paul reminds us of that in 1 Corinthians 5.11. He says, But now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Now that speaks of church discipline. They're to be disfellowship because they won't give up these sins, and so certainly it's a sin to be a drunkard. He includes that here. In fact, Paul includes drunkards under his list of those unrighteous people who will not inherit the kingdom of God in chapter 6, which is a scary thing. I think the reason is because they're just choosing something else to be their master. 
don't know if you've met people who have had a long life of addiction to alcohol, but you can see that alcohol is not a good master. Jesus Christ is a good master. It's a pleasure to serve him. It's a joy to serve him. But things that uh, uh, enslave us, addictions, don't serve us. We serve those things, and we're enslaved by them. There are tragic consequences when leaders are alcoholics. Isaiah condemned the spiritual leaders for their drunkenness. And I want you to see this in Isaiah 28, 7, the consequences of their actions. But they also have erred through wine and through intoxicating drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. Do you see what the consequence was? They couldn't, they couldn't give proper judgment. They didn't have proper vision to, to lead the church, to shepherd the church. A leader must not be given, given to wine, addicted to wine. What often goes hand in hand with this for many men is also he, a leader must not be violent. Notice it says in verse 3, not given to wine and then not violent. This is a hard word, plague taste. It means a striker. It means pugnacious. A, a giver of blows, this is the person who solves problems with his fists. That's the type of person this is. He's not to be a violent uh, person. Instead, he is to be gentle. Now, I want to point something out in your Bible. Your Bible might say here, uh, not given to wine, not violent, and then not greedy for money, but gentle. Sounds a little weird, doesn't it? Wouldn't it make more sense for him to say not violent, but gentle? But here it says, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle. The reason is that not greedy for money phrase is actually not found in the majority of old manuscripts that we have. It's a newer phrase. And so many Bibles exclude that because it doesn't really make sense there, and properly so. In the majority of the oldest manuscripts and reliable manuscripts we have, that phrase isn't there. And it makes sense to me because covetous is, at the end of that verse, which deals with not being greedy for money. So it's almost repetitious. It seems to be in the wrong place there, which is okay. From time to time, you come across things that don't appear in our oldest, most reliable manuscripts. This would be one of those. So what would follow from not violent is that he be gentle. And gentle describes a man who's considerate. He's forbearing. He's patient, which is the exact opposite of one who's given to blows, who is a striker. And closely related to that is that... Um, which is also among the things he should not be, is he should not be quarrelsome, amakos, uncontentious. Now, this refers not so much to the physical fighting as it does to one who is prone to disputes. This is one who just likes to argue. He likes to quarrel. He likes to bring up things that will bring up arguments, always seeking the quarrels rather than unity. He's a contentious person. This can't be a leader in the church. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 2, 24 to 25 describes a leader to, in a church, and it adds this. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. Notice that disputing, quarreling does not mean you don't correct. Did you see that? He is to not quarrel, but he is to correct. And there is a difference. The difference is that the leader should know the difference. <laughs> the leader should go, listen, 
this is not the way you want to go. This is against scripture. This is the way you want to go. We're to exhort. We're to guide people back to godly living. But that is not a quarrel, a quarrelsome person. A quarrelsome person is one who just likes disputes. He's prone to disputes. And a leader should not be quarrelsome. And the final one here in verse 3, we'll close with this, is not covetous. And there is the one that has to do with money. In fact, the Greek word aphelarguras literally means free from the love of money, which is why another reason why I believe that not greedy for money phrase probably isn't in the original. It's here. Here he covers the money aspect. And obviously much of scripture warns against the love of money, but particularly it's revealed as the primary motivation of a false teacher. Remember, there are false teachers here in Ephesus. And so Paul, laying out these qualifications, says he can't be a lover of money. He's got to be free of that. And in Paul's ministry, he often clarified his motivation because that was the idea. People were, new people were coming and teaching new things. And they, oh, you probably, they probably want money. They're probably in it for money. And Paul never wanted that to hinder the gospel. He did not want people to think he was in it for money. In Acts chapter 20, to the Ephesian elders, he reminded them, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Remember, he tells them for three years, I did not, you know, uh, stop giving you the word. I gave you everything. I taught the whole council. I never coveted your gold. I was never here. I was never in it for the money is what he's saying. Paul clarified that. Look at my motivation. Did I ever desire pay from you? I did not. In 1 Thessalonians, to the Thessalonians, he writes in 2 verse 5, for neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is my witness. We, we, didn't, we didn't try to, 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 to cloak over uh, things to hide our covetousness. We're not in it for the money. You know who was in it for the money? The chief leaders and Pharisees of Jesus' day. They were in it for the money, and Jesus saw right through that. He says, you devour widows' houses. I mean, just gobble those things up. You make excuses uh, that, oh, you don't want to take care of your parents because we want to make a gift to God, and no doubt they kept some of that themselves. They turned the temple into a market for their own profit, and Jesus had to whip them <laughs> to get them out. Peter warned of the false teachers that would be coming and are in a church today. And I want you to see how he described them, and we'll close with this. 2 Peter 2, 3. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. Deceptive words meaning they're not going to preach the truth. Because if you preach the truth, you cannot in any way come to some kind of conclusion that, that they, they need to take all your money. But many, uh, many a TV preacher will tell you that. And you can certainly tell their, their, uh, their motivations by their lives, by the cars that they drive and the houses that they live in and the private jets that they seem to need to fly around. We're going to need a, a private jet just to get up to uh, Cardiff Gate, just so you know it's not my motivation, uh, but it's just a little further away. Isn't it silly, though? I mean, you can see these guys, they, they say, oh, we have a word from the Lord, and the next thing is, is give us your money. And their motivation is, is clear. Paul writes a great deal about the dangers of loving money in chapter 6. I'll save it mostly for that. But God's requirement for a leader of the church is that he be free from that love. And I want to take you back to 1 Peter 5, too. He says this, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, and not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. That 
is the qualification for one who comes willingly and has a willing desire to serve the flock of God. We're his servants. So we looked at three areas, his moral reputation, his marriage, and his mastery of self. And next week, we'll come back and we'll look at the other three, his ministry, his managed home, and his maturity. Let me close in prayer. God, thank you for your word to us today. I thank you that your word is so specific and so clear for the protection of your church. It's your church, and you want only certain people in power or in leadership of your church. And Lord, I just pray that um, in addition to that, we will have seen that these really apply to all of us in our own hearts, that we are all to be blameless, that we should all be temperate and sober-minded. We should be self-controlled people. We shouldn't be given to wine. None of us should be violent. All of those things would, would really um, disqualify us in the eyes of others. Where would our evangelistic opportunity be? Where would our testimony go? We're to be a shining lights on a hill, Lord. And I just pray that we would be reminded of that today. Your word is so, so clear, so perfect. We worship you today for your love for us, that you clearly laid out how you want us to live for your glory and the furtherance of your gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.